0: We usually take our health and safety at work for granted and hope to live our lives free from harm. Yet it's estimated that more than 2.8 million people die each year from accidents in the workplace or from work-related illnesses and a significant higher number again are injured. Incredibly, work-related accidents are estimated to cost 3.9% of global GDP annually and much of that cost hits the individual companies involved. And the fallout can be very damaging in other ways. Reputations can be ruined overnight, share prices crash, consumer confidence just vanishes. So could technology play a greater role in protecting the lives of workers and the survival of businesses? Welcome to Safety Tech. Safety Tech is technology being applied to safety solutions and there are so many opportunities to be had it's estimated that the potential market in developing and creating new safety tech is worth somewhere in the region of 860 billion dollars by 2023 and this is where lloyd's register foundation comes in with their safety accelerator an open innovation system that allows startups to develop their own innovations and bring them to the market I'm Tom Heap and welcome to the Global Safety Podcast. Once again, we're on Zoom, but that doesn't mean we can't highlight the technologies under development with the Accelerator Programme. Much more on that later, but now I want to introduce who's with me. Experts, innovators, let's meet them. First, I'm joined by Jan Shidaček. Jan is Director of Technologies at Lloyd's Register Foundation and an expert on all things relating to the Accelerator And I'm also joined by two innovators championing their own safety tech breakthrough. Kyle Dupont is CEO of Harlow and Stuart Pfeffer is co-founder and CEO of Reality AI. And we won't keep you waiting too long to reveal what their innovation actually is. So to get things underway, a quick fire question for each of you. What do you think is the biggest safety concern? And we're talking wide here that you'd like to be able to solve? And you never know, we might come up with some cracking ideas on this episode. Jan, what do you think's the real challenge out there?
1: Accidents often happen because we don't see them coming or because we don't think they'll happen to us. Sometimes this is because we simply don't know that the risk is there and sometimes it's because we do things the way we've always done them or maybe we want to take shortcuts uh, because that makes our lives easier. And often we don't understand how the actions we take contribute to something altogether much bigger. So if we could solve these points step by step, I think the number of accidents that you were talking about earlier would probably
0: be reduced. And is there a kind of technological way to getting us to realise those perils rather than just assume everything will be okay?
1: It's not only technology. Technology has a role to play, but this is about people as well. Technology can help people to make better decisions, but actually it's, it's the people that are the core and the way that this will actually change. It's the people.
0: Stuart
2: Pfeffer, what's your biggest safety concern? Well, I think uh, Jan said it very well. Accidents happen because we don't see them coming. And we take that literally. Um, that is, uh, from an engineer's point of view, seeing it coming reduces to a sensing challenge. At Reality AI, that's what we focus on is... Uh, using advanced sensing to see things coming, even if it's not visual. That's really what we do. We provide advanced engineering tools for uh, using sensors to figure out when something is happening that shouldn't be happening or predicts the possibility of something happening. That, that that that's how that's how we view it.
0: It's interesting. You almost want to be inventing the safety version of the, the precogs
2: from Minority Report that could see <laughs> see a bad thing about to happen. In a way, and it, you know, we say see because as human beings, we often we immediately go to the visual, but it often means hear or feel the vibration or notice something strange in an electrical signal. Uh, but one way or another, um, finding the things in the environment that allow someone to detect. Uh, that something bad is happening or could happen uh, is the first step.
0: I feel the vibration. We've gone straight from Minority Report to Spiders and Spider-Man, but let's move my leave pop culture aside for a moment. Uh, Kyle Dupont, what's the, the biggest challenge out there for you?
3: Mine, I think, probably build on both Jan's and Stuart's comments. Safety incidents are recorded often in just unstructured text. It's just uh, text that somebody saves on a computer somewhere. Um, And this text is being saved not only within a single organization, but at organizations throughout the UK and throughout the world. Uh, These safety incidents aren't necessarily unique to those organizations, and a lot of learning can be had when you you, use the knowledge from those incidents across multiple organizations. Now, what we find is a big problem in that is that there's a lot of private data in there, and we need to be able to unleash that data while also respecting privacy as regards to medical conditions, as regards to sensitive sites, etc., Um, And so what we do at Ohalo is essentially help bring those hundreds of thousands, if not millions of documents together in a privacy-respecting way so that that data can be shared between organizations.
0: We'll come on to some of the details of your particular innovations in a moment. But Jan, if I could um, just come back to you, how would you sort of define the umbrella of safety tech and why is it so important for Lloyd's Register Foundation? Well,
1: safety tech is all about the technologies we can bring together to impact safety And by that, what I mean is about insight. One of the things that we need to be able to understand is what's happening so that we can take appropriate steps to to stop things going wrong. And what safety tech does is it uses safety uh, technology solutions to make products and services that we can use in the real world to tell us what's happening so that we can do something about it. Our safety accelerator is essentially a bridge between companies that understand the safety problem, they own the safety problem, and technology startups that have solutions for those problems. We start by working with the problem owners to to define exactly what their problem is, uh, and we call them our challenge partners in this process. Uh, And then through our partner Plug and Play in the States, it's a company that is a venture capital company in itself, but also it's a large, effectively an accelerator company. It helps industry find technical uh, tech companies that together can work on solutions together. We find startups that may have solutions to these problems and it helps to incubate them and teach them how to do their business better.
0: Can I just interrupt for a moment, when you talk about the problem owners, are you talking about you know, the big companies, be they Unilever or, or BP or you know, um, I you know, th- those, those kind of, they, they could be engineering, they could be service companies, they could be anything, they all have risks involved. They could. I
1: mean, it's, it's the companies that make the things and products and services that we all buy and rely on. So you've got people like BP and, and other energy companies, transportation companies, through to the food industry as well. They all have potential for
0: unsafe things to happen. Now I guess all this might be seen as a little bit of a cost up front for business, but I guess nothing in compared to the, the financial impact of a serious accident. Can, can you put some figures on those at all? Accidents can cost an awful lot of money if you look at somebody like
1: the bp accident
0: you're talking about deep water horizon name eh? I in the, the gulf oil spill yeah
1: yes uh, but in general, fatalities and companies can affect their share price. You can also lose the ability to, to manufacture. You may lose the ability to do what you do. And the costs of that are something you have to pick up later on.
0: I've seen a figure that, that a fatality or serious injury and an additional loss can be you know, over, over 100 million for a company at least.
1: That's right. And these, these are serious amounts of money for any organisation. Uh, and the point is that they, with the right
0: insights, they can be avoided. Well, let's talk about some of the particular tech. And, and just uh, briefly, Jan, to stick with you for a moment, one of those on the accelerator is this Sensei technology. Can you tell me what that is, how it works? OK, so it's, it's a great example of,
1: of technology being used for safety and, and being transferable across sectors, um, and that, that's really important with the with safety tech, that the companies that are in the safety tech business are not necessarily starting out as companies looking at safety. They're working in other sectors and then moving that technology for a purpose which is different. And Sensai is exactly one of those organisations. Uh, when you talk to David, the CEO, he, he talks about things like looking into my eyes. Like a magician. <laughs> like a magician. <laughs> uh, um, people have often said that the eyes are the window of the soul uh, and it can tell you anything. People have looked into this for a long time without success. But the secret of Sensei is that it understands that there are 5,000 muscle fibers in the eye which are connected to different parts of the brain. And if you know what you're looking for with the sense eye technology that captures the images of your eye, you're able to tell how somebody is. You can tell if they're intoxicated with alcohol or on drugs. You can tell if they're tired. You can tell something about if they're stressed, their mental condition. And if you have this information in real time, it means you understand the people that are going about to do a particular job. And in the safety accelerator, this was applied onto the bridge of a ship where when the crew were coming on board for duty, they could be tested to see if they were fit for duty uh, or for the duties that they were particularly supposed to be doing that day. If you're able to understand people's condition before
0: they go on duty, uh,
1: you're very much able to prevent accidents
0: from happening. And and is it more sophisticated than, than just, I mean, up to a point, you and I can look at someone's face and say, well, they look either really tired or maybe they've had a few. It's obviously being much more precise than that. It is, so when it's looking into your eyes,
1: It's very much able to pick up on the the things that are happening to you. But the one thing that we've learned is that people have different tolerances. So you need to be able to understand someone's tolerances. So what shows up as one person having not had a good night's sleep may impact somebody else quite differently. So it's an indicator. It gives you an insight of things. But a decision will always rest with a person, should they be able to work or not.
0: Well, that's sensei which sounds really good. But let's move on to our, our innovators who are in the virtual room. So let's start with you, uh, Kyle. Kyle
3: DuPont, tell me about your company
0: and what it is that you've invented.
3: So at Ohalo, we sell a product called the Data X-Ray. Uh, and the Data X-Ray really it's, comes from the data privacy space, right? Being able to identify what data is private, and then being able to extract that to a useful format, and then lastly redact that. Now, what we did with Lloyd's Register and the Health and Safety Executive, which is the UK's Health and Safety regulator, uh, was take that that last bit, essentially the redaction bit, and and deploy that at scale. Um, and the Health and Safety Executive essentially had six hundred thousand documents of of safety incidents, right, that they wanted to analyze so that they could hopefully, you know, at the end of the day, find out where accidents are happening and get people home safely to their families at the end of the day. Now, after they did manual redaction for about 2,000 of those documents, uh, they went to Lloyd's Register and said, you know, help us. And uh, we were fortunate to be uh, selected by the plug and play program uh, to help out Lloyd's Register on redacting those documents. So
0: let me just pause you there, Carl, to make sure I've understood it as we're going along. So these are the kind of reports that come in from every safety related incident across the country. You're always supposed to file an accident or a near miss report and and, and things like that. That's right. So the HSE have got all these documents and they want to be able to learn from them, but there's data protection issues there, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So so it
3: has things like, um, you know, very simple stuff like Kyle DuPont fell off a ladder and broke his neck and can't walk anymore. Um, and that's sensitive personal information that shouldn't be shared with third parties, right? The HSC has been entrusted to hold that data and they're, they're not supposed to send that to third parties without proper protections around that data. Now, you you can just go through it with a, with a black marker and pen, right? And just say, you know, let's take out the Kyle DuPont bits and then we'll, you know, be able to say that that data is properly protected. Uh, but after they got through around 2000 of those documents they found that it was going to take them up to 12 and a half person years to do that. Um, which you know is a pretty much a non-starter right for for kind of unleashing that data. Um, so when they when they went to the Lloyd's register we were able to do the same thing with with Lloyd's register in about a day of machine time instead of 12 and a half person years of time uh, you know reducing their cost by I think it was like 49x and reducing the time by I think four thousand five hundred x or something like that. So it was quite a quite a, a good achievement, I think. And now since then, we're we're actually working on them with some extra other projects.
0: I'm really fascinated by this. So how, how can your technology? I mean, some of this some of this may be commercially sensitive. So you, I'll let you police that boundary. But but how can your technology look into the documents? Okay, that, you, can, you can see documents. That's fine. What it, it, it understands, what names are, it understands what addresses are. It understands
3: what. Uh, other
0: sensitive information. is. It talk me through how it can do
3: that. Yeah, well, I mean, um, it, it's it's kind of like having, you know, hundreds of thousands of analysts uh, at your beck and call. A machine can read hundreds of thousands of words per second and you can scale it up and down as much as you'd like. Uh, whereas you and I, maybe if we're fast, we read 10 words per second or so. So it's, it's essentially the ability to get that scale of, of human readability and at similar accuracy rates, but within a machine so that you can scale it up and down and you don't have to keep these people aboard all the time to do it. Um, and, and you can save the analyst time for the stuff that they actually you know, are good at, which is analyzing the data for accidents.
0: But in a very simple term, can it look at a document and see the name you know, Tom Heap or Kyle DuPont and think, that isn't an English word as I know it, and it's got a capital letter, so it could well be someone's
3: name, basically. Is it, is it that kind of thing? Yes, it is. So so um, we have a pretty sophisticated analytical pipeline, which probably isn't so consumable on a podcast type of thing, but um, it's, it uses various techniques uh, related to natural language processing Uh, more traditional techniques like dictionary matching, regular expressions, and we mix all that up together um, to build unique algorithms that can look through free text and and find the the sensitive bits, essentially. And this
0: may be very obvious to you, but what is the big win for the HSE of getting hold of this big data analysis?
3: Well, the first step is just simply being able to analyze the data in a way that respects privacy, right? The next step is essentially... Looking across those reports and finding you know typologies of accidents, like are, are ladder accidents often uh, associated with inclement weather or are, are there certain type of accidents on particular site types like if you're if you're at a power plant are a certain type of accident more more likely there um, and that's really where you want to get to is is being able to find out where those types of accidents are happening so that people that are performing those type of activities can can take care not to not to have those kind of accidents. Eventually, where you want to get to is, is more of a, a, a cross-organizational data sharing platform where, you know, you can have people uh, ingesting data from all over the place and being able to use that data at scale to find out how accidents are happening across the world and being able to apply that to their own local site. And presumably you can cross-reference
0: things and saying, hang on, there's a, there's a lot of accidents happening be- around 4 p.m. I don't know. Exactly. People's blood sugar low, And that matches with bad weather or a certain type of behavior or I, Precisely. I i guess those are the things and that gets you to, to where we started that gets you close to the the, the the precog thing that we talked about being able to predict when and how an accident might happen and, and shutting that door
3: right 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 that's exactly right
0: brilliant it, it, that's a really nice use of, of ai and machine learning i often hear the terms and i'm a bit kind of skeptical about what they're actually delivering but i, I really do get that Well, let's uh, move on. Uh, Stuart Pfeffer, uh, tell me about uh, your company and and, and what it is that
2: you're delivering. Sure. So uh, at Reality AI, it's a little bit different, right? We're providing, uh, on the one hand, AI-driven tools for engineers who build stuff with sensors. And on the other hand, we will sometimes use those tools ourselves and build solutions, uh, which then are offered to the market. Um, in the case of the uh, Lloyds Register Accelerator, uh, Lloyds has uh, paired us up with Sellafield Limited in the National Nuclear Laboratory to try and solve a challenge involving ductwork in nuclear power plants. There's quite a lot of ductwork in these plants, and they carry various gases from place to place. And uh, when there is a problem in, the, in those ductworks, well, that's, that's a problem. So uh, the challenge is to try and figure out um, problems while they're still very small and easily repairable. So, uh, you know, things like holes, corrosion, loose connections, and we are now working with NNR and Sellafield to use sensors to try and spot them. And just before you come to your solution, tell
0: me how that, you know, rattling, bolt or rusty patch would have been seen in the past, or or, or even today, I guess.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not sure I even know. Uh, we're not nuclear engineers. We're, you know, AI people and signal processing engineers but uh, I presume they have uh, mechanisms for figuring out where pressure is dropping or there's visual inspections or the uh, problem is manifested in some other larger way
0: but what is the weakness in the current system that that yours could address well
2: catching it very very early right so the the notion here is that by uh, putting a, a, a sensor in a transducer uh, every every certain amount of distance along these rather long pieces of ductwork, we can tell that the sound of the uh, steam moving through that ductwork is different. So we listen for the sound of the steam. We listen to the sound at the joints. Every now and then we issue a little ping and see how the return of that ping is different. If it's different than it was when it was normal, we know that something isn't normal. And uh, you can pinpoint
0: it. So a lot of these pipes have sort of certain properties, uh, resonances. Maybe are there other things I don't know? Conductivity, heat transfer, uh, the, the various things that, that you're kind of sensing.
2: Yeah, I'm sure there's lots of those things because it's inexpensive. We're going to be using uh, we're, we're using sound. We're at the very early stages with Sellafield and N R on that particular solution. But yeah, sound and vibration has the advantage with current currently available commercial components of being very very inexpensive to deliver.
0: And I guess certainly in the in the field context, there's a sort of double safety gain here. Presumably the actual inspection system, the human inspection system can be quite hazardous, certainly if you're involving anything to do with potential radioactivity. And then you've got the massive safety thing of it involving some kind of uh, accident.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I think they're looking for broader coverage at lower cost and higher reliability. You know, the thing about using a system like this is that you can watch the entire system all of the time, as opposed to a periodic inspection regimen.
0: And this is a technology that's presumably could be applied to other areas of big engineering. You know, refineries, for instance, that also have a lot of ductwork or steel or cement plants or anything.
2: Absolutely, we have another customer that uh, runs chemical plants in Japan, and they're you know using our stuff to detect filter clogs and you know that type of thing. Um, But, uh, you know, on the safety category, we've also, you know, just released an automotive solution. Uh, This won the Future Mobility Award a couple of weeks ago, where we're also using sound to hear the sound of something coming around a blind corner. All right, go on. (laughs) Commercial uh, collision avoidance systems in cars are largely relying on cameras, um, radar, ultrasound, line of sight technologies. Uh, They can only see what they can see. But uh, if you've ever driven with the windows down, you know that sometimes if you can't see it, you can hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've put microphones on the outside of a car and turned the car into a rolling microphone array, uh, working with partners like uh, Infineon, the semiconductor company, and uh, Denso and Hagiwara in Japan, the car parts companies, and um, built a prototype version of a supplementary system for those camera-based collision avoidance things that will hear something coming and let you know, even if you can't see it.
0: That's really nice. Briefly coming back to the pipe and and sound and resonancing, the ducting, I'm just going to try a little analogy on you here that might help me to understand. It might be completely wrong. But famously, a cracked bell makes a different sound from a sound bell, a bell without a crack. Is that at root the same technology, that things have a kind of resonance and if they've got some kind of fault in them, they sound different if you strike
2: them? That is exactly what it is. And um, we can, in some cases, do it with passive sound. That is just the, you know, as things are moving through the pipes, they sound a certain way. And when they move through damaged pipes, they sound a different way. And we can do it with active sound, where we put out a ping and the way the ping propagates is different. So um, both of those are, uh, are useful. Famously, the
0: reason that Big Ben uh, bell and Parliament sounds the way it does—the last bong—is because it's cracked, so it's a bit flat. It goes dong. <laughs> so, I'm interested, for to hear from from all three of you briefly. Start with you, Carl. I mean, where do you start with something like this? Did you come up with a problem, or as a as a bit of I think Jan mentioned earlier, sometimes there's a
3: a solution out there in search of a problem. How did it it work for you? Well, well, our our bread and butter is really the data privacy space. So Ohalo came out of really GDPR and the other privacy regulations that are sweeping the world right now, helping companies with those first two steps that I talked to, identify and extract. So being able to identify what type of data is sensitive and then being able to extract that to useful workflows around data subject access requests and things like that where we were really able to leverage the accelerator was was on that last step and in, in, in really developing out that redact pipeline uh, where, where you know, we're going a step beyond that and actually processing the data so that it's usable um, in a privacy-respecting way. So, so that that's really where, where the, that kind of evolution came into place.
0: So you're already trying to make the awkwardnesses of GDPR, which we all talk about occasionally, you sort of rub those corners off and make it
3: more user-friendly within our current world. That was already the space you were in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, other regulations come into place. What do you do? You call your lawyer and lawyers create some processes. uh, And those processes are often really hard to actually implement in in the real world. So, you know, we're we're helping them implement that at scale uh, at the actual data level. And so the the safety
0: application of this is one of of many applications of, of what your company's into.
3: Yeah, we, we do. I mean, we do, yeah, safety, we do data minimization strategies where we're helping companies delete data at scale. Um, we're helping them map that data, data subject access request response, that kind of thing as well.
0: And Stuart, same question to you. Did you sort of come to this deliberately or did the safety element of this sort of sneak up on you?
2: Oh, no, we were definitely a hammer looking for nails. You know, our, our stuff was actually originally built for military and intelligence applications. It's no accident that we're in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C.
0: So is that where the Department of Defense is? Is that what you're telling me?
2: Department of Defense is in Virginia. But I mean, this is where the soldiers and spies do their thing. So that's where this technology originally comes from. And uh, a few years ago, uh, my uh, co-founder, Jeff Suraki, he's the mathematician who actually invented this stuff. And I uh, took uh, the stuff out of uh, a company that was doing it for the military and created a reality AI, which is 100% commercially focused. We don't have any government or military, no military customers anyway.
0: Both Carl and, and Stuart, I'm, I'm really loving those two technologies, because what I love about this is they started as, as, as quite impenetrable to me, but they've I've absolutely got them. And I hope that the excitement of that translates to the audience as well. But I just want to broaden out a little bit in the safety space. Jan, I see that Overall statistics suggest that the great improvements, the steep improvements we've had in in workplace safety are slightly plateauing and industry's not getting safer in the way it was in in previous decades. Why do you think that is?
1: I I think perhaps it's worth qualifying that statement a little bit, because if you look further back across many decades, then safety has been getting better. Uh, We've had regulations, safety equipment, safety processes in place but what we're finding is that in developed economies in particular, that the rate of improvement has plateaued. Uh, and in some cases, even if you look at the United States, there are indications it's starting to trend in the wrong direction. And also, if you look at other economies that are are, are developing rapidly, there are indications that they're also tending towards this plateau. So it, it's an interesting thing. And the reasons for this could be many. One of those is that the way we look at safety traditionally is by looking at the past we look at historical things that have happened or gone wrong perhaps accidents and we collect data from the past and 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 try to infer something from it from quite a long time ago and these sorts of things mean that you're not working with the 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 real time actual data that can tell you when something is happening so one reason we think things have stopped getting better is because we're looking at things in a in a in a historical sort of way but things are are also getting more complicated the systems we have are designed perhaps some time ago they have barriers in place and processes in place that are there to prevent accidents from happening but things can change over time and it's those changes that we might not be picking up so much Uh, we may not even know that we're making changes to impact something that was previously thought as important
0: a couple of brief questions. I want to let Carl come in because I can't see him nodding. But um, just that, that thing in the States that it could be going the wrong way. I mean, how come?
1: Well, I, I think it goes back to these things. It's that it's the lack of information of what's happening and what's happening today in in real time. If you're relying on the past, it's not necessarily an indicator of the future.
0: I don't want to sound like the accident's friend here, but there is, of course, another possibility, Not not in an uptick, but in a plateauing, is it, it becomes more and more difficult to get rid of the last accidents. You know, this is the sort of case in anything, isn't it? To make something 90% safe is is great. And I'm not saying it's easy, but you know what I mean? It's achievable. To get rid of that last 10% is always going to be really, really tough. I mean, there that, that could just be an element of that in this, couldn't there?
1: It's possible, but I, I think from what we see when we look at accidents that have happened, some of them will certainly be preventable if there was more information available and if that information was turned into insight that you could do something with. Um, and whether that's looking at previous records, like we've got Kyle's work there, looking at how could we crunch lots of data sets of accidents that have happened, but also looking forward to be able to sense things that are happening in real time, like you heard from Stuart. Uh, and be able to see what normal looks like. And if you understand what normal looks like, then you start to see what things look like when they move away from
0: normal.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a kind of a general trend in any kind of industry or technology, right? I guess you have different modalities that you can use as history kind of progresses, right? So, you know, if you have the ability to implement a regulation that requires certain equipment, that's that's pretty low-hanging fruit. And then then you have the ability to analyze massive quantities of data that's something even better. And then if you have the ability to analyze massive quantities of data across multiple companies because you're able to respect privacy, um, that's, that's another thing altogether. And I think this is all just dependent upon general, I guess, advances in, in technology, right? We're kind of at a golden age in, in natural language processing right now and we're able to actually get intelligence out of massive quantities of data without requiring, you know, hundreds of thousands of analysts to do it.
0: How committed to this are big companies? Because I look back at, you know, Big disasters all the way back, you know, the Bhopal agrochemical accident in India, which is kind of seared in the memory. Deepwater Horizon, we mentioned a moment ago, Exxon, Valdez. I mean, these are things that have massive impacts on companies, reputational damage, share price, etc. So uh, are they still really keen to improve their safety? Let's
1: face it, nobody goes about business intending to do harm. And all companies want to do things that are safe for everyone that's involved. So yes, what we're finding is that the companies that, that we're talking to through the accelerator are both big and small. I think there is a, a real interest from all sort of scales of organization to tackle the safety challenges that they see.
3: I'd like to comment on that one as well. Obviously, this was one of the first forays that we had into the safety tech space, but since then, um, we've you know had probably four or five other companies come to us with with the same problem um you know these safety teams have the ear of the board in a lot of these large industrial companies um or and and so i've been pretty pleased at how willing these companies are to pick up this tech and 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 move with it
0: yeah and this may relate to your area sue but i've i've got a note here saying that the internet of things is responsible for 77% of the safety tech market which is ends up like a, a, a many hundreds of billions of dollar figure when people talk about the internet of things in this space are they Talking about work like yours, Kyle, is that right?
3: well, I think Internet of Things would probably be more on the Stuart's side if Stuart wanted to take that one
2: yeah, I think that that's that, that's more 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 our stuff I mean it, certainly um Internet of things refers to the ability of to deploy lots of devices and have them communicate uh, in real time and constantly um, you know we think of Internet of Things as being mostly about glue that is it's the ability to take a uh, a device in one place and have it report what it sees to something in the center. You know, if if, if IOT is the glue, edge AI, which is what we talk about is sort of the brains, that is to, to be able to put that sensing smarts, deploy it on an inexpensive chip and put that into a device that you can make hundreds or thousands of and deploy along the ductworks in a nuclear power plant. So would you see other ways
0: uh, in which the internet of things the advances that it brings could help with safety in 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 a much
2: broader sphere of business well certainly I mean I think you you've already you've already mentioned that uh you know you can see uh, industrial applications and um not just in duct work but in all kinds of industrial equipment we have customers who are making gas turbines, we have customers who are doing you know all sorts of uh uh industrial processes where there are conditions which may be difficult to detect, um, where uh, putting more sensing technology and more smarts closer to the location of the source of the problem can help you find it quicker and cheaper. So uh, yeah, we're seeing that in many, many sectors.
0: Well, Jan, just just give me the kind of core pitch of how the Lloyds Register Foundation Safety Accelerator can help those who are working on a problem-solving technology.
1: So the Safety Accelerator starts with the people that own the problem, actually. It starts with understanding who has a problem and exactly what it is. And then what it does is it engages with the the, the startup tech community to see who has a, a solution to that particular problem. And very often it's, it's a solution that's never been looked at in safety, but actually it fits in really well. Uh, and once we go through a competitive process of, of picking the technology that we want to try out in the real world with, with our challenge partner, uh, we then fund a pilot where that is tested to see how it actually performs in, in real world conditions. Uh, and, and, and Kyle, for example, with the HSC testing it on their data. And we've got Stuart testing his technology on a nuclear installation or a mock up of a nuclear installation so it's, it's it's about bringing these two different sides together and creating something that's amazing
0: and have you been running this for a few years or is this is early days or what
1: Yep. so it's been running now for coming up to two, two and a half years uh and it's had quite a lot of successes along the way so we're very proud of what it's been able to achieve so far
0: and uh presumably planning on running it out for the foreseeable future to find those uh real safety breakthrough companies out there
1: our aim is that if we see for that uh, the potential for safety, for safety tech is sort of an industry that's worth $863 billion. And from our perspective, if the world could be made $863 billion safer, then that would be an amazing thing.
0: How close can we get to eliminating all risk from the workplace? I don't
1: think we can eliminate all risk, but I think we've got huge improvements that can be made.
0: Do you agree
3: with that, Carl and Oh, no, For sure. We're, we're working on it every day. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the workplace you're talking about. Right. I mean, sometimes uh, it might make sense to replace a man with a machine or sometimes it might be possible to reduce incidents to, you know, once in a balloon moon. Right. Um, I think, you know, there's always going to be people in the mix at some places. So, you know, that means that there's going to be incidents um, that happen. But I think I'm I'm a bit more optimistic. I think I I think we can even, you know, reduce accidents completely in some activities.
0: Very good. Well, what a, uh, an optimistic note to end on and generally a very upbeat conversation. I was really, really uh, inspired by, uh, by much of that. Thank you all for joining me on this edition of the uh, Global Safety Podcast brought to you by Lloyd's Register Foundation. Thanks very much to Jan Schiedetek, uh from uh, Lloyd's Register Foundation and also Kyle DuPont. Thanks very much. And Stuart Pfeffer. Thank you. Thanks for joining. The Global Safety Podcast, brought to you by Lloyd's Register Foundation. Please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode.